The Teachers College at Emporia State University presents How We Teach This. Welcome to How We Teach This, our podcast for K-12 teachers and higher ed in Kansas. And we are so excited to have a returning guest of Dr. Jenny Moss, and she's here to talk to us about self-determination theory. If you didn't hear our first episode where we talked about defining it, giving the theory behind it, and better understanding what it is and why it's important in the classroom, be sure and check out that previous podcast on our website. Today, we're going to focus more on the actual tips and tricks and nuts and bolts of how do teachers actually take that understanding of self-determination theory and put it into practice? And you're gonna love the suggestions and the strategies that you're gonna get today. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Jenny Moss. Christy, I'm so excited to be back. I really could talk about all this stuff for days and days, but my plan today is to come in with some follow-up and some ideas of how you can use this and also helping make it sound doable because a lot of people hear these sort of ideas and they think, oh my gosh, it's gonna be chaos or I can't let them do just whatever they want. So we'll try to package it into something that sounds doable. And then also why, how the students benefit. Why is this good for the students? Awesome. All right, let's get going. Um, one thing that I want to start off with, just kind of as a, an extra bonus point, bonus little content piece here, this is really good for us as teachers too, because when we are controlling with people, our students, our children, if we have any, our family, our friends, we don't feel good. And people have noticed this. When you raise your voice to yell at somebody, it does things in your brain that make you not feel good. And when you are angry and upset, um, we aren't at our best. And it takes a toll on us. And there's been so much talk about teacher self-care lately. And I feel like one of the easiest things to do is to kind of you can't see my hands, but I'm shifting my perspective and kind of I'm shifting my outlook a little bit to think about how can I take the student's point of view a little more often, or how can I be a little more um, understanding of things that are happening so that I don't get upset and I don't expend that energy being angry or, or and it really, it takes a toll on you. So, um, it's just something to think about in terms of being your best as a teacher and, and taking care of yourself. Um, we, we see this sometimes if, oh, if the superintendent is getting mad at all the principals and the principals will then turn around and be upset with the teachers. And then we as teachers start to feel like we're gonna take it out on somebody too. And we want to, as best we can, protect ourselves and our students and try to put a stop to that. So just a, just a little uh, extra piece to think about. We benefit when we teach in a way that is autonomy supportive. And 
I can totally relate to that. As a parent, I was also a teacher, but as a parent, I had this aha moment when my son was getting into middle school and he was taller than me and bigger than me. When I realized I can't make him do this. <laughs> yeah. I can't stop him from doing what he wants. I have no control over his choices. And this was a huge aha moment to say, I got to step back and we got to come at this from a different approach. Okay, you're right. I can't make you. We will deal with this later. I'll let go. It was huge. It improved our relationship a hundredfold. When I realized I literally did not have the ability to make him do it. And to translate that, there's a few ways to think of this. And my early work in um, this kind of self-determination theory and thinking about autonomy support started in um, working in the preschool level. I felt like people were more likely to ask elementary-aged kids what they thought, what do you want to do, but little tiny people were a couple steps above pets, if I can say that. You know, it's like, oh, sit down, come here, what are you doing? And so I really felt like they needed to have options and choices, and in a lot of ways as teachers, we really do need to understand how little control we do need. I mean, we could have all the control we want. We have their grades. We have their ability to play football if they don't get good enough grades. They can't be in bay, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There's lots of stuff like that that we can control. But um, one of the things, when I think of a classroom where we are teaching or people are teaching in a way that's autonomy supportive, some of the things include letting the students have control of their, letting them have the instructional materials. Um, I've seen a lot of classrooms where a teacher holds the glue stick and comes around and shares it momentarily when the kids are allowed or um, not passing out the papers or not, you know, just kind of holding the instructional materials rather than letting the students have them. Um, so that, that's one area where I've seen, especially in early childhood, where we like to keep control of things. Oh, they'll, they'll, they'll get it messy, they'll do this, they'll do that. Um, I have a great story when my mom came to help out in my older daughter's preschool class. It was around Halloween and the kids were, you know, somebody had cut out a pumpkin and somebody had cut out noses, you know, little triangles for the noses and a little mouth. And there were other parents helping at other tables. And my mom was there with my daughter's table. And my mom looked around and all the other moms were holding stuff for the kids. And all of their pumpkins looked remarkably perfect. And my mom looked at the table where she was helping out and those kids had Picasso pumpkins, but they did it themselves. Nobody said to them, oh, that's not right. Don't do that. Don't put it like that. The kids were joyful and they did their own pumpkins their own way. And so often um, we as teachers tend to worry, oh my gosh, no, we can't do it right. Don't do that. If we can let the process happen, 
Often the kids will learn more. You might encounter some additional teachable moments like, wow, that's a glue stick, not chapstick. But you know, it's a teachable moment. Kids do it once. But um, so letting the students have instructional materials is a, a great first step um, for, um, especially in thinking about this at the elementary ages, but also letting the students Letting the students talk. Letting the students do the talking is very autonomy supportive. Rather than having the teacher do all the talking, we wanna hear what they have to say. It's their schooling, not ours. Um, when they're older, one of the things it's important to listen for students that may have misunderstood something and yet still want to share their opinions and, Obviously, we need to deal with that, but we don't uncover their misunderstandings until we let them talk. So the more we allow them to talk, the more we as the teachers listen, the more we hear what they're thinking and we can uncover and go, oh, 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 I see where you may have assumed those two characters were related. Hey, everybody, let's talk about where where, where we got that idea and whether that's right or not. You know, you can uncover some of those things, but only if we hear them. Uh, another one, um, independent work, letting students have time to work. And whether that's really little kids where obviously it's gonna be less time or older students. I even did it for my college students recently. They came in and we, oh, we realized one of our Wednesdays would be uh, extra filled with a guest lecture. And so they said, well, oh, but didn't you say we'd get a work day? And I said, okay, do you want to have Monday as a work day? And that'll have to change what we're doing. And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, we did it. We had Monday as a work day and their projects this semester were better than ever. And they giving them that and listening to what they had to say, as well as giving them time for independent work was super important. Um, let's see. Questions yet? No, no, I, I'm still processing. I, okay. I love the idea of letting students talk. And I was thinking of the middle school Socratic seminar um, activities where it actually specifies the teacher take a back role okay. and the students have a discussion and how powerful those were in my classroom. Those can be really hard. We're teachers. We got into this because we like to be up in front of people. We, we like to be in charge. <laughs> you know, I say that, uh, you know, with an honest understanding that I too am like that. And um, we are good at what we do. Often how good our class is running by administrators, by people, passing in the hallway might be determined by how much control they think we have in the classroom. But um, really, that's not when always when the students are doing their best learning. Um, another thing that really benefits students that we often don't think about is giving hints. And um, kind of the opposite of that might be telling students the answer. And the messages that go along with those two statements or those two concepts are really powerful. 
if you give a student a hint, you are saying, I believe you can figure it out. If you give them the answer, you're telling them, I don't think you can do it. But if you give them a hint, you're, 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 giving, you're, you're showing confidence in them. And that can be really powerful, whether the, they're 12th graders or second graders. If you just give them a, a small hint, you're, you're indicating that, that you think they can do it. Another way that we can be supportive of students' autonomy is to um, refrain from using should statements. Using statements, I, I love to do this. Um, it works great with your children if you have any. Um, I drop into a third person sort of phrasing. Some students find that planning an outline before they start works really well. Some students find that they have to get started writing first and then they can pause and outline the rest. But, but some students who forget to do the outline, sometimes those students really struggle. And so I am not telling them what they should do, what they have to do, but I'm showing them what the consequences might be depending on their choices. I've used that one with my children at home and, and it was pretty effective when we It is, it's amazing. Troubleshooting what to do about a bully um, and giving her all of the bad examples that some students might try and having her go, no, no. And then slowly coming into better examples <laughs> and letting her figure it out for herself through some students might some students might like this. Some teachers want their papers to look like this when you turn them in. Some teachers want this. You know, the directions on the paper explain how we turn in papers in this class. But yet I haven't said, you have to put your name in the upper left corner. Another one is praise, and, but it's the right kind of praise. And I know as teachers, we hear this all the time. We praise the effort, not the product. And it comes under this um, level of autonomy support as well. Um, because again, it's super helpful for students to let them know that we see them, we see their work, that that's what's most important. And that helps students feel that they are um, more the quality of their performance over the quality of their product. And this falls under, we've talked about this kind of, we've kind of been uh, nibbling around the edges. Autonomy support is a sense that you have some choice. You have some, some sense of volition. And that's where things like, wow, some students can try this. Some students did their science project with this computer program. You as the teacher are offering some choices and you're not saying you have to, because when we bring out the have to's and the should's, we're taking away their sense of choice. If we praise their efforts, um, that's a choice. They're in charge of that. That's something they have control over. They don't always have control over the outcome. We grade it. I mean, they put in the effort, but you know, especially when they're younger, they aren't quite always sure what's, what's what, but 
they are in charge of their effort. Um, when we give them a hint, we're providing a nudge, but we're not telling them, well, here's the answer, let's just move on. And they have a kind of, like, they still have that volitional sense that they want to keep going. Uh, another piece that um, a little, kind of a little different from choice, but still related, promoting value. And that can be so hard in the classroom because there are so many things that we as teachers have to do that we don't want to do. Pacing guides for math curriculums. That was one of my least favorite things to do. I'm not surprised. Yeah, no, ever, ever, ever. And so um, there's always things we don't want to have to do. And honestly, our students would love to be out riding bikes, playing video games, anywhere in between. And so um, when we can promote the value of what it is we're doing and why this is important. When kids get older, we try to talk about how they can use this in the real world. And um, it applies when they're younger too. Um, we're gonna need this to solve the problem of how many birthday cakes we need to make, or we're gonna need this to help out with figuring out the amount of food we've collected for the food drive. How are we gonna use this math? Wow, let's see. And promoting uh, the importance and the value of the lessons we're teaching. Um, so that's uh, kind of a huge one, I think, because if the students feel like there's a reason and a purpose for what they're doing, then they're more likely to engage in it volitionally. We did a community service project, I was teaching social studies at the time of the Haiti earthquake. And we were able to connect, getting the students to do some fundraising for victims of the Haiti earthquake with what we were doing in the classroom. And I saw a huge increase in their motivation to be involved and participate. And I think it really was that real world piece. They felt there was true value in what they were doing. And it was kind of one of those teacher moments uh, you wish you had a few more of. Oh, I know, yeah. One of the, the, where we're getting at with this is that in, in, to encourage students to feel like their autonomy is being supported, for us to support their sense of autonomy, we like to provide things for them to do that have intrinsic motivation. This can be hard because not everything is gonna be intrinsically motivating, but where possible, choices can help, uh, we see it all the time with science fair projects. For example, kids usually choose what they're gonna do for that. They wanna look at how fast do bananas go rotten when you place them in different environments? Or the, the classic one, how long does it take for a vitamin to dissolve in different kinds of liquids? Uh, things like that, but they chose it. One of my daughters did the Stroop test where you try to say the color, not the word even though it, the word red will be written with blue ink and the word yellow will be written with green. But um, it was something she chose and she had a ball with it and she still remembers that fondly. And that sense of choice is so important to it, promoting intrinsic motivation. Another one um, in terms of the autonomy support in the classroom, value um, I mentioned, and that helps promote internalization. So we're gonna take that understanding of 
the classroom rules, the, the, the way things work here, the importance of the class work that I'm doing, if the teachers are helping promote valuing, then the students are more likely to kind of internalize that. And um, when we say things like, because I said so, we're not giving the students any reason to grab onto that. But if we can say, wow, well, the reason that we take these tests is to learn this, or the reason that we have PE twice a week is because we've seen that kids that are more physically fit or, or have a chance to be more active are likely to feel better and do better in school. And when we can explain things, then they're like, oh, okay, I get it, I see. And they um, are more likely to follow along and go along with you. One of the ways that we get kind of caught up on the other side of this is, um, well, the other side is control. And we can get caught up in being a controlling teacher or behaving in more controlling ways because in a way, I mean, it's kind of like what society expects of us. And like I said earlier, if people are passing by your classroom and things might look kind of crazy, but you know the kids are working, you might get a note in your mailbox later from the assistant principal going, wow, looks like a party in there. Hope everything's okay. People seem to value when teachers have control over the classroom. Um, that's classroom management. Uh, it's kind of the more professional way to say it. When I first started teaching, I think some of my need for control came out of fear. It was fear that if I let go too much of that control, I will become overwhelmed or who knows what might happen. Um, and I think as I became better at teaching, my less fear allowed me to give the students more autonomy. It, it just seemed to me more of a natural piece um, as I became more competent at my job. Absolutely, the competence has a, a, is a huge piece. And I've heard people say anywhere from three to five years is what it takes to feel like you really know what you're doing. But I'm hoping that as we teach our teachers here at Emporia State and arm them with this information about being more autonomy supportive to start, not having to always be in complete control all the time may help them get there a little faster. There are a lot of reasons why teachers might become controlling. And like I talked about in the very beginning about how being an autonomy supportive teacher is good for you. Then I said that sometimes the superintendent might be mad at the principal who might get mad at the teachers in the school and so on. We are subjected to the pressures from above. And when that happens, we can be very controlling because we are being controlled. And so that controlling that may be difficult. It may be a matter of understanding what you do and don't have your own personal control over. It may also be where some people want to go into administration someday later on down the road and be the change that we need. Or um, definitely 
voting, being a part of what's happening in your school, in your district, so that you're aware of these things and you don't feel just like a puppet. If you don't feel as controlled, then it'll be easier for you to go to the classroom and feel like you have some sense of personal autonomy and, and you know, personal um, volition. One of the other big things that makes it hard to be autonomy supportive in a classroom are behavior modification and behavior management strategies that teachers are taught. And maybe they're not taught them in their collegiate programs, but when they get out to the big world, the school district may insist, or a school in the district may insist everyone uses a clip chart or a flip chart. Those are pretty controlling. Having to make a student's misbehavior or mistake become a public issue, it's using shame. It's using that should motivation. And no one feels good when they're being should on. I say that a lot. I tell my students, don't let people should on you and don't should on yourself. <laughs> Yet we do that to our students. <laughs> yeah, we time. do. You should know better. When we can find ways to manage behavior that doesn't involve public shaming or doesn't involve um, extrinsic rewards. I know one school I taught at, everyone who had a good flip chart score at the end of the semester would get to go on a special prize field trip. Sometimes they'd go roller skating or they'd go to a movie and the other kids didn't get to go. Well, the other kids never saw what it was they were working for. They never got the understanding that maybe they were struggling. And after a while, you start to feel kind of bad about yourself. They might have felt that they didn't have any choice anymore. I don't know. This is who I am. This is how I am. Eh, I quit. But um, that's a tough piece of it because so many schools rely on this and have expectations that teachers are going to work this way. So you mentioned that the clip charts and the public recognition of behavior, it has a negative impact for what we're talking about. Do you have any specific behavior management plans that you do recommend that teachers looking for something in that realm might be able to research or implement? I think one of the biggest ways is to first start with the instruction because or the curriculum. We tend to focus first on the learner and that's the bottom. That's the last thing we can impact, but it might be that the curriculum is too easy or too hard. It might be that it's just not very good. And we've all been faced with textbooks and we look at it Oh, no. I remember spending weeks teaching my fourth graders in Illinois all about the Finger Lakes region in New York because that was a, a big unit in our geography. I don't know what it didn't matter to them. Sometimes it's the curriculum and it may take more to work at making it engaging or how, you know, so it's the curriculum and the instruction together. How do you make something more engaging? And then that really can solve a lot of behavior problems. And the next one would be the environment that I would look at. Is your classroom set up in strict rows? 
Or do you have a table full of students who all just chat? Or do you know what is what's going on in the environment that is um, maybe creating either some disengagement or some troubled behavior? And then if you can't get things, if, if those implement, implementing those solutions isn't giving you the answer you want, then maybe look at the learner. Just to give credit, I, I used to work with a school psychologist uh, and that's where I got that acronym. It's CIEL, it's C-I-E-L, the French word for sky. It's curriculum, instruction, environment, learner. And we may wanna modify the learner's behavior, but we may have to start at the top. What's the, what is, what's going on with the curriculum? What are I doing as a teacher? And then what is the environment like? And then lastly, what is going on with that student? So the clip chart focuses immediately and directly on the learner, the student in the classroom, going up or down on the chart. Right. And by focusing on making sure what we're teaching and how we're teaching is the best that it can be in a positive environment, we might not need that to focus on the learner, or we might need to just focus on a few individual learners. Hmm. Okay. It's what we would hope. And I know things have been changing. It used to be that we didn't see a lot of autonomy being taught in terms of lesson planning. But oh my gosh, my teachers now are always, when we talk about when I get them early and then I get them later after they've had more lesson planning and they all talk about choice boards. Like yay, knowing about how, you know, pick something from group A, group B and group C and those are all relatively equal in rigor in each of those groups. And so they, the students really have some choice and find what different ways to engage that are more interesting to them. And when you get that kind of interest and engagement, you have less and less in terms of behavior problems. Awesome. What that does require though, is structure. Because Often when teachers and administrators, especially administrators, hear things like, well, we need to be more autonomy supportive and, and give the students choice. It sounds like we're inviting mass chaos and it makes people very uncomfortable. That would be scary for some. Because, because you're no longer in control. Ooh. So it's important to remember that autonomy support needs to have structure. It needs to be accompanied by structure. That's where that choice board is the perfect example where you have choices you can make, but they are restricted to this set of things. So you can pick one from list A, you can write a three-page paper, you can record a 10-minute video, or you can write a play. These are off the top of my head, ladies. <laughs> but you can do those things. And I would consider them to be all, all of equal rigor, pick one, and then pick one from this set and this set. So I've given the students some choices, but I've placed them in a structure that will allow them to be successful. Sometimes when teachers give too many choices and not enough structure, students flounder. How do you know when you're done? How do you know if you're meeting the expectations? We have a fantastic story we like to tell 
from when my oldest daughter was in fourth grade, fifth grade, somewhere around there, she had a teacher who was not providing enough structure and she was letting them write stories. So my daughter was writing a story and I started to get nervous. And as this went on, by the time it got to around 32 handwritten pages, I started to wonder if she was ever going to finish this story. And I remember talking to the teacher and she's like, oh my gosh, she's so creative. And I'm like, she's not learning how to finish. And she's like, oh, you're rushing the process. She will get there. I have to admit, you know, people of the podcast world, she never finished it. She's 24 now and she laughs about it. She never finished the story. (laughs) Needed a little more guidance. Right. So structure is really important. Structure alone can lead to a lot of controlling behaviors, but autonomy support on its own can lead to chaos. And so it's not, it's like nature and nurture, like almost everything in education and psychology, it's not one or the other, it's both. And we need that structure so that students can, if they're going to have a choice, they need to know what it's a choice between or among. Um, Students can get, just like anybody else, we can have decision fatigue. Um, There's a great story where they set up a, oh, it was like a kiosk at a mall. And they gave people, they they had homemade jam for sale. And they had 20 varieties. And you could taste all 20 of the varieties on little crackers. And then they came back maybe a month or two later And they had a very similar display, but they only had three flavors that you could try and had them out on display. And they found they sold more jars of jam when there were only three to choose from. Because people, when they have the 20 options, they got decision fatigue. So we don't want to do that to our students. They're not, we're not asking them to come up with whatever they want, but we're going to give them some structure and some choices. So we can also provide structure when we ask students or give some suggestions to students. So some students have done their science fair project on something in nature. Some of them have done their science project in something to do with nutrition. Some of them have so on and so on. We're giving them options and choices. Um, We can also, it's a little more sneaky maybe. (laughs) You know, I'm not above that a little here and there. But offering, presenting a situation to a student, then letting them make a choice of what they're going to do about it. Um, Often with littlest kids, like uh, threes and fours and fives, wow, I see your coat is on the floor. And usually because no one has come at them and said, hey, you have to go pick your coat up, usually they go and do it. They deal with it. Oh, I see your coat's on the floor. Oh, okay. But and then if they don't, that might be where I might say, oh, wow, if a coat's on the floor, someone could trip and fall. And so I'm still kind of offering them the opportunity to fix it themselves without having it's to- It's like you're giving them hints and prompting them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, that's great. Actually, I, I've never thought of it that way before, but you're right. That's a little hint. Hey, by the way. Um, So these kind of opportunities for structure, for for, um, 
you know, providing some hints, not always giving away the answer, um, really helps students feel like they're doing it themselves. And we feel better when we do things ourselves. And we're happier. We like the people around us when we're in an environment where we get to make choices and feel good about ourselves. And so that hits those three big pieces of self-determination theory where we want autonomy, relatedness, and competence. If I can go to school and feel like when I go to school, I feel like I'm doing a good job. And when I go to school, I like it there and people like me and my teacher likes me. And the third part of, well, when I go to school, I get to do things I like to do. If we could hit all three of those, behavior problems really do drop off. And that makes sense. We're meeting the students' basic psychological needs, and so they don't have to try to get those needs met in other ways. Sounds like a great strategy. Here's my situation. Let's say I'm a teacher who has only had a classroom with high teacher control. That's all I've known. That's all I've been able to do. This is new to me. What baby steps do you recommend that I could try if I really do want to make a change? Some of what I would suggest might depend more on the age of the students. But if we think about like upper elementary, fourth, fifth grade on up, first thing I would suggest is doing more listening, finding out what um, what is what it is, you know, asking students for their feedback, I guess, finding out what's the barrier in terms of getting things done, especially if you are thinking about making a change, often it's because you're not satisfied with how something is. And so investigating that and asking the students, would you like to rearrange the furniture? How might, you know, you can't give them control, but you can say, I'll take suggestions. But um, how would you like to rearrange the furniture? Or, wow, we've got two books to read next and we can choose one or the other. They're both on the curriculum list for ninth grade English. Which book would you like to read? Or maybe if there's a divided group, maybe you have two groups reading two different books. So I would recommend more time listening and, and asking for students' feedback. It's a huge way to help them feel involved. Um, in higher education, we have a really bad habit of waiting till the very end of the semester for this. So um, the students don't get to have, whatever they tell us doesn't have an impact. They don't get to see the impact of their statements. And so um, some faculty members, and I've done it in the past too, well, we will have a survey midway through the semester and ask, hey, what's going well for you? What could I do that would help? And getting that feedback. And sometimes when you get the whole class feedback, there's things you can't control. I've had students say, I like this class, but there's a really big post in the middle of the room. And I think that really bothers me. And after <laughs> I finished laughing, um, because it was a room in the basement and we couldn't move the post, but um, after a, you know, this little chuckle, 
I respond to, I usually would respond to all the students in the class and say, wow, so here are the things I heard and I wish our room had, I wish this room had a window too and I wish we could get rid of that post. But just letting them know that their, um, their concerns as small as they might be were heard can really make them feel a lot more invested in the class and the process. So providing them some choices or just asking, hey, you know, I, if you're familiar with the term exit slip, hey, at the end of class today, um, I, everybody's got an extra sheet of paper on their desk. I want you to tell me three things that are going really well. And maybe later on in the week, ask them, tell me what's the one thing that you'd like to change. And just hearing that and then definitely respond because they don't know they've been heard until you respond back. Otherwise, they might think that you take those papers, collect them, and put them in the proverbial round file, <laughs> garbage can. Um, but if you read them and you respond to them, then that lets them know, wow, she really cares. Well, we are about out of time, and we've got so many great ideas. I uh, would like to ask two things. One, do you have any other quick tips or suggestions that we definitely want to make sure we mention? And two, do you have any resources that you recommend for a teacher out there that would like to um, incorporate more of these strategies in their future classroom? Okay, first suggestion. One of the hardest things about being autonomy supportive and creating this kind of classroom environment where students feel um, comfortable and they can express their opinion, we need to learn to accept negative affect. That's the technical term for it, but um, we need to be okay when they get mad. If I have to come in and tell a group of eighth graders, I did not get your essay tests graded yet. I know they're gonna be mad. And if I get, if I react when they start going, oh man, oh, I'm so worried about my grades and oh. If I then in turn get mad, that's not helping the situation. If I can learn to accept their negative affect and just be like, you're right. I wish I had more time, but you know, I had something came up and this is where we're at and I'm gonna work really hard to get them done tonight. And you know, we'll work this out together. Then they feel like they've been heard, but accepting negative affect, um, when it's the third or fourth day straight, you're doing indoor recess because it's so cold outside, they're gonna be really crispy with you. And you can get mad back or you can just be, I know, isn't this awful? I agree. And it, it, it deflates a little of their anger because they're being heard, but it also prevents you from having to get mad and getting mad there doesn't help. Um, in terms of resources, um, I will, um, first, um, the biggest suggestion I would make are um, books by Jane Nelson. She's written Positive Discipline in the Classroom and all of the different flavors that are out there. There's positive discipline in the early childhood classroom. I think she just wrote one for Montessori classrooms. There's positive discipline for older and younger kids. And I think there might even be a home version, an at-home version now. But um, the, um, one of the things I like is the um, classroom meeting idea where you have a meeting once a week and you get to hear things and you get to help students voice their concerns and 
Um, sometimes you have them put like with uh, like older, I use this especially in fourth grade, little um, idea, they would put their concern in a notebook. And then on Friday, when we had our classroom meeting, I would check with the students and see, okay, is this a concern we need to talk about? Nine times out of 10, the situation had worked itself out and I didn't even have to get involved, but it, it put them in charge. It let them make the choices. Okay, I put it in the notebook. And then usually either it would just work out on its own or they would take steps on their own. And I let them uh, take the lead on that. So I like the, the positive discipline books. Very cool. And I will put a link on our website to those. Great. I can't thank you enough for your time to be here on our podcast and share with us your knowledge and expertise in this area. I think it has real potential to make a big impact in classrooms across the country. So I thank you very much and I hope you have a great day. I hope so too. Thank you so much for having me back, Christy. Bye. This is Christy Dugan, the executive producer and host of How We Teach This. And I hope you've enjoyed our episode starting in season three. We have many good things planned for the rest of this season. And coming up soon, February 2nd, we're planning the Kansas Teacher of the Year event. And we're going to get to interview the teachers that are participating in that event and ask them some questions about what they do in the classroom and get some inspiration from them. So I hope you will keep tuned in, subscribe to our podcast. Thanks for listening. This episode of How We Teach This is sponsored by ESU's Social Emotional Learning Certificate. Addressing the need for trauma-informed learning environments, ESU's 18-credit hour certificate in social-emotional learning and psychological well-being is now available. The program's goals are to further educators, mental health professionals, and others in the science of social-emotional learning, development, and interventions. Learn more at www.emporia.edu.